Well, perhaps only a few of you at this point have likely heard the name Albert Benjamin Simpson. A.B. Simpson, who lived from 1843 to 1919, was a Canadian preacher, a theologian, a missionary who founded a movement of evangelical churches known as the Christian and Missionary Alliance. There's a little interesting historical factoid about the CMA and the BFC. That is, when the Bible Fellowship Church was first established in the year 1858, our first missionaries were actually sent out under the CMA banner. Even Eusebius Hershey from Pennsylvania, who made his way all the way to Africa with the gospel of Jesus Christ, was sent out really as a CMA missionary. Well, anyway, it is said that A.B. Simpson, who was known to wake up each morning, to drop down on his knees, to clutch a globe in his hands, and weep for the lost in prayer. Evidently, Simpson's grasp on God's global heart to save those who are lost and perishing apart from Jesus moved this Christian to tears, and it clearly motivated him to tell others about the Savior. Oh, that the Lord would do that in my heart and in yours today. No, I didn't forget that I preached this text a few weeks ago. Some of you are like, I think we've heard this before. It is interesting to me that once again, God's sovereignty over our sermon schedule at Trinity is amazing. And honestly, I couldn't do it. I couldn't line it up even if I tried. Last Friday and all day Saturday a week ago, our elder board, as I mentioned last Sunday, took a little weekend retreat to our denominational headquarters up in Allentown to the BFC offices. And over 24 hours, we focused on three specific topics. Friday night, we focused on our health as a local church. Saturday morning, we focused on our effectiveness as a local board of elders. And Saturday afternoon, we focused on God's great vision for our future as a church. In short, it was a humbling and an encouraging weekend. We are very excited, and we are deeply and profoundly humbled by what God is doing in His church here. We were encouraged by the three guest facilitators that were brought in to help us think about these important topics, even as evidenced already this morning, amen, by the eight baptisms that we have witnessed together. God is doing an amazing work among us at Trinity. But listen, there was one, or perhaps even two, weak points or areas of significant room for improvement, in my positive spin, I might say, that our evaluation and conversation very clearly exposed, specifically evangelism and discipleship, making disciples and maturing disciples of Jesus Christ. We knew that already. We knew that already as a board of elders. And I think we have a sense of that as a local church, even despite good fruit in that area. Our church is strong in teaching, rich in community, warm in the spirit, but we are at times lagging and weak in our reach to our friends, our neighbors, and to the nations. We need to do better. Now, couple this with the fact that next Sunday morning, oh, by the way, is Pentecost Sunday, which means, if you haven't been around for too long, that's our missions 
Global Mission Sunday. We always tag uh, the, the notion of missions with Pentecost Sunday when the church began. And then you begin to see why today's text really is quite timely. Why do we pray, friends? Why do we pray? Well, today's message is about prayer, but a little different from two Sundays ago. What is it that, what is God's good purpose behind his grand strategy of prioritizing public prayer in the life of the local church? In other words, what is the big, glorious, theological reason or motivation behind our reaching up to God in prayer and our reaching out to others with the gospel? Is it not this? That like Brother Simpson, A.B. Simpson, we might not be affected by and fueled with God's passion to seek and to save the lost. That's why we pray, ultimately, for the glory of God among his people. Consider with me just for a brief moment, Article 19. Yeah, we'll do a little doctrine this morning. Article 19 of the Bible Fellowship Church's Articles of Faith. The evangelistic mission of the church. Paragraph 1 reads this way. That the church has been commissioned by Jesus Christ to preach the gospel to all nations. Nothing new here. We all know this. Each particular church and every believer, though, bear responsibility for this commission. Preaching Jesus is our job collectively. Not just my job as a pastor, it's your job and mine as Christians. The great commission of Matthew 28, 19 to 20, go therefore into all the world, making disciples of all the nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded. You know that text like you know the back of your hand. Matthew 28, 19 and 20, while very well known, has been largely ignored in the local evangelical church. In the latter part of the 20th and the start of the 21st century in America in particular, the Great Commission has become sadly the Great Omission. The Great Omission. Jesus' missional mandate to go and make disciples has for some been a suggestion for us to consider rather than a sovereign directive to obey. When we fail to make and to mature disciples, then we fail to live out our sovereign Lord's kingdom mandate. It's that serious. Article 19 verse, or sorry, paragraph 2 goes on to say, God has clearly revealed in the gospel the only way of salvation sufficient for and applicable to the whole lost race of mankind. Based on his infinite and perfect love, And his expressed desire that all men be saved. Let me underscore that line. He bids that the church with urgency, compassion, and persuasion proclaim the gospel to all people and invite them to believe. Did you hear that? Based on his, that is God's, infinite and perfect love and his expressed desire, underscore that all men be saved. We are urged with compassion and mercy and persuasion to proclaim the gospel. Where did we read that? (laughs) Right here in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul says to Timothy, this is good. Well, what is good? What is good? Well, it is good that Christian communities called local churches prioritize public prayer. 
asking and beseeching God with all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people in all kinds of places in order that the right conditions for quiet and peaceful living and kingdom proclamation might be met. That's what is good. This is good, Timothy. And it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. Now we got to read on. For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. This was, for this I was appointed, Paul writes, a preacher and an apostle. This was being challenged because he says, I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then, Paul concludes, that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. I want you to notice with me this morning specifically that sandwiched right in the middle of this powerful paragraph on the priority of public prayer, how Paul cites the real reason for our requests, how Paul gives us the true motivation behind our communication with the Father above, the true purpose for all our prayers and the source sustaining our supplications, and the wonderful theme behind all of our thanksgivings. What is it, friends? It is God's desire that all people be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We could put it a different way. For Paul, the motivation behind much of our praying, I wonder if it's the motivation behind hardly any of our praying at times, or at least it ought to be, is God's plan and his passion to redeem all kinds of people. We can't say that enough because I'm not sure we really believe that. We're okay with God saving people like me or like us, but what about people not like us? That is, if God wants all kinds of prayers said, and if God desires all kinds of people saved, and if Jesus Christ truly is, and my friends, my friends, do not mistake, he is the only mediator between God and men, then we as his church must urgently, compassionately, and even persuasively proclaim his gospel. Where? To the ends of the earth. To the nations. See, one important takeaway, if you're a note taker, this is a good thing to jot down. One important takeaway from this particular text today is that praying for lost people to be saved realigns and reignites our hearts with the merciful and saving heart of God. And I don't know about you, but oftentimes on Monday, I need my heart to be realigned with God's eternal purposes to save my coworkers and, and other people around me, right? Don't we need that? One writer said that worship is the fuel for praying or world praying, and that worship is the goal of world praying. I like that. In terms of the Bible's priorities of public worship and the Apostle Paul's instructions for the gathered church in our worship, notice that he begins with a greatly a great word of encouragement for Christians to offer all manner of prayers. We looked at that two weeks ago. For all types of people, that's what our focus is today, for the sake of the one true life-saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because this is good. This is our mission, friends. It is to make much of Jesus and so see people be saved 
and be baptized into the name of Jesus Christ. Now, when I first preached this, this text a few weeks ago, I, I actually limited my remarks, if you recall, to what I dubbed that week the priority of public prayer in the life of the gathered church. And if you missed that particular sermon, I encourage you to go back and listen to it on our church website. You can find it there. It's from Sunday, May the 7th. But for those who are here, you might recall that I said that we were going to come back to this text because there are a few verses in this passage that perhaps might seem a bit confusing or troublesome or difficult. At the very least, they point out some tension in our doctrine. Now, as is often the case, it is very important for a right understanding of really any portion of the Bible to keep the larger context of Scripture fully in mind. The old adage says, a text without a context is actually a pretext. And I think that's true. It's a pretext for making the Bible say anything you want it to say. And I think there's actually some great peril if you take 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4 in particular, out of its context. You see, once again, the larger context behind Paul's letter of 1 Timothy is his urgent command to a young pastor named Timothy to stand up and even to try to shut down a group of false teachers and apostates spewing false doctrine there in the city of ancient Ephesus. These apostates, these who had maybe started out well but had turned their back on faith in Jesus Christ and false teachers, including men by the name of Hymenaeus and Philetus and Alexander, we've looked at these individuals uh, in the past, they hijacked the law of God and they were twisting the text to suit their own sinful and, and destructive agendas. We never see that happening in the contemporary church, do we? No, we do. We see it quite often. It appears that these erring elders and twisted teachers were limiting the benefits of the gospel only to those who sided with their errant and distorted views. They were limiting the gospel. In contrast to them, Paul reminds Timothy, and then through Timothy, he reminds all of us in the church that the real reason why we are to prioritize prayer for all kinds, uh, all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people in public worship is because God really does want all kinds of people, mind you, not all people without exception, but rather all people without distinction to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. I'm going to say that many times this morning. In other words, stay with me, there is not a Jewish gospel over here and then a Gentile gospel over there. There is not an American gospel on the one hand and then an African or an Asian gospel on the other. There is not one gospel for the rich and then a different gospel for the poor. There is not one gospel for white people and one gospel for black people. Friends, there is only the gospel in Jesus Christ. There is only one gospel. There's only one gospel coming from the one true God who sent the one glorious mediator, Jesus Christ, to have and be the one necessary payment, what the Bible means by the term ransom for your and my sin. And this gospel, Paul wants Timothy and all the church in Ephesus to understand, is the only gospel for all people. For all people. 
both Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles. The message of Jesus then is the motivation for glorious prayer in the local church. In fact, it might be helpful for me briefly this morning to show you what I think is the real structure and flow of this particular text this morning. How Paul uses the structure to point to the the middle of the text and the main point of his message. If you study the passage in any close detail, you may come across um, what is the Bible doesn't describe it this way, but it's a it's a technical term that we use, a, a chiasm, a C H I A S M, a chiasm. And what is a chiasm? A, a, a chiasm is an intentional literary structure that uses a unique pattern of repetition for clarification or explanation or emphasis. And I I believe we find one of those right here in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Let me point it out to you. I'm going to use a pattern A, B, C, C, B, A. That's the chiasm. And you're going to see some parallelism in the passage before. So let's look at verses 1 and 2 together again. Paul says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I urge, first of all, that all kinds of prayers be made for all kinds of people. There's the A. You got to understand what we're, what we're finding here. It's going to show up on the screen behind me. Paul even gives really kind of an extreme example of what he is meaning or intending. He says in verse 2, I, I urge all kinds of prayers for kings and for all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. In other words, Paul's challenging those twisted teachers. You think you own God? Well, I even want people to pray for Nero, for Caesar, for others in high positions of authority. All prayer for all people is the first portion of this text. Second, the letter B, the first B, verses three and four. Paul says, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And maybe highlight in your text or in your mind at least the words knowledge of the truth. Now Paul uh, particularly points out that God wants again all people to come to the knowledge of the truth. Again, this is not all persons without exception but rather all kinds of people without distinction. He wants them to come to become saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now let's work to the next level, the first C, verse 5. And here we're going to see two statements, one in verse 5, one in verse 6, that really they, they hang together. For, purpose clause, explanation here, for there is one God. There is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Up to this point, before you come to verse 5, what has been uh, the most common word employed by Paul? The word all. All, all, all. Some six times in seven verses, Paul uses the Greek word pas, or derivative of it, to emphasize the breadth or the, the global focus of God in saving the world. But not in verse 5 and not in verse 6. He shifts focus to a different word, and that is the word one. There is one God. There is one meteor. There will be one ransom that Paul will highlight in verse 6. And let's go on to verse 6. 
he gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Somebody, and this is so good, somebody has actually referred to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, as the clearest synopsis or summary of the gospel in the entire New Testament. I think this is a very significant place for us to linger and to study. Again, the point here for Paul is that Jesus Christ is not just a ransom. He is the ransom. He is the one ransom for all, the one ultimate gift, the one way back to God the Father for all kinds of people. Again, don't mishear that. Not all people without exception, but rather all kinds of people without distinction. What is a ransom? Well, a ransom, of course, is the price paid for the release or the rescue of a slave or a prisoner. There's a story told of the great 16th president of our nation, Abraham Lincoln. It may not be a true story, but it's a powerful story nonetheless. How Abraham Lincoln went down to to a slave block, and there he noticed a young black girl up for auction that day. And moved with compassion, Abraham Lincoln bid on this young girl, and, and he won the bid. Upon purchasing the girl, Lincoln leaned down from his tall frame and and told the disbelieving girl that she was now free. She was free. In her surprise, she said, what does that mean, sir? It means that you're free, Lincoln replied. Do you mean that I can say whatever I want to say? Yes, dear child, you can say whatever you want to say. She continued, does that mean that I can be whatever I want to be? Again, Lincoln replied, yes, little one, you can be whatever you want to be. Finally, the little girl looked at at Lincoln with tears streaming down her face, and she said, does that mean that I can go wherever I want to go? And he said, yes, you can go wherever you want to go. You are free. And then she said, again through tears, then I think I'll go with you. I think I'll go with you. Beloved, we have been ransomed in that way. We have been set free through his blood. That's what it means to be ransomed by Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17 says, Therefore conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or without spot. That is real freedom. Well, notice the second B in our chiastic structure. It's found in verse 7. Parallel with God's saving pleasure that in saving all kinds of people when they come to the knowledge of the truth is Paul's own purpose as an apostle and as a preacher and teacher. He writes, for this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling, notice, The truth. I think it's the word truth that helps us see this chiastic structure between verses 3 and 4 and verse 7. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. I am a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Listen, who does God want to be saved? Who does God will be saved? We don't have a lot of time to think about this this morning, but there really are two levels of God's will. There is God's sovereign will that always comes to pass. And there is God's moral will 
that mankind always stands against until God works in their life. God's sovereign will always happens. God's moral will often does not. And I think that is helpful in our understanding of what is going on in this particular text. It is not that all people without exception will be saved, for that is the heresy of universalism. All people will be saved if you take that understanding. But rather, it is all people, all classes, all kinds of people without distinction. I think Paul is really saying Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, slave and free, will be saved. For this, Paul says, was the very purpose that he was saved and was sent as an ambassador to the Gentiles. Well, there's only one final port up. Part here in this chiastic structure, and it's found in verse 8. All kinds of prayer for all people in verse 1. In verse 8, Paul uh, reinforces this, or maybe brings it to a conclusion by saying in verse 8, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. I think that's helpful to see this, that the meaning of this message, the real purpose of the passage simply stated is that the one true God of all the world desires all types of people, all types of sinful people, Jew and Gentile to be saved. And that is why he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and men who gave himself as a ransom for all sorts of people Once again, not all people without exception, but certainly all people without distinction. And further, it is this because of this one glorious global gospel that we in the church are to prioritize not only prayer, but prayer for people to be saved. Prayer for people who aren't like us to be saved. Prayer for people who are hard to love to be saved. But I ask you, when was the last time you prayed in that way, or that we prayed in that way. Again, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, especially, is a verse that many people love to go to for the wrong reason. They love to go to that verse to say that God loves all the world in the exact same way, therefore all people will be saved in the end. Kumbaya. That's not what this verse says at all. Far from teaching universalism, that everybody ends up being saved in the end, And far from teaching that God's desire, that is God's will, is somehow weak and able to be thwarted by fallen mankind, this text takes our nose and shows God's grand grace, his global passion to ransom all manner of people through the one sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. And then it commands us to not forget about it when we drop to our knees as a people and we pray. We should pray for the nations because God is the God who saves the nations. Church, we should be praying for all kinds of people to come to faith in Christ. Why? Because God really does love all kinds of people. In fact, we're proof positive of that when you really think about it. Who are we to think, oh man, I don't want them to be saved? when God's grace washed over us. But do we do this? We should preach, not only should we pray, we should preach the gospel to all kinds of people that they might know Christ. Why? Because Jesus really did die for many of them. Jesus really did die 
that their sin might be atoned for. I love that little glimpse of heaven in Revelation 5, verse 9, that many from every tribe and tongue and nation and people will be gathered around the Lamb that was slain, singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lamb of God. People all over the world, many of whom don't look like us or talk like us or even at times think like us, Jesus died for them. Therefore, we should be animated and motivated to preach the gospel to them in season and out. We should give thanks when God actually answers our prayers and saves people that don't look like us and sends them our way. When people who don't look like you walk through those doors, do you turn the other way or do you open your arms and embrace them? We should be thankful when God saves people who aren't like us because it's proof positive that God is hearing our prayers and he is answering our prayers. The church is not a country club for the saved, it's been said. It is a hospital for sinners. But do we really believe that? If we do, we will pray like it. We will pray long, desperate, needy prayers to a God who saves his people. Rather than being a subtle trap for some theological debate or controversy, I'm more persuaded than ever that 1 Timothy chapter 2, 4-6 simply motivates our lives for the mission of a globally saving God. That's why this verse or these verses are here. It should melt our hearts for what pleases and honors the very heart of God to see other people come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and to not hoard our blessings for ourselves. It should move us like A.W. Simpson to hit our knees and clutch a globe and weep long prayer. I wonder how this might, this explanation might stir your heart to pray and take the gospel to others. One of my very uh, favorite illustrations of such an amazing passion that I probably have mentioned here before is that of William Whiting Borden. Borden was born in Chicago in 1887. Many of you perhaps have heard his story. He was born in Chicago to uh, a, a dairy estate. He was the well-known heir, in fact, of, a, of the Borden Dairy Estate, which meant that upon coming of age, he would have been a, an instant millionaire. William graduated from high school in 1904, and as a graduation present, he received the uncommon gift of a trip around the world. Sorry, kids, don't get your hopes up. <laughs> However, little did those who gave him this trip realize what would happen to him when he was out there. While abroad, William began to feel a great burden for the poor and for the less fortunate who were dying apart from Christ around the world. He wrote home expressing a strong desire to give his life in service of the gospel as a missionary one day. This did not please his family and friends even a little bit. Instead, they focused on all that William Borden stood to lose by choosing such a selfless path. Well, he wrote in the flyleaf of his Bible, you might have heard this before, two little words, no reserves, no reserves. That's only a part of the story. After returning to America, William enrolled at Yale University. There, well, he was a model student. His, uh, though his, his family hoped that this college experience would, would really quelch uh, William's desire for the mission field, but it actually only fueled it. You see, Borden started a Bible study there at Yale, and by the end of his first year, there were 150 students meeting weekly to study the Scripture in small group prayer. 
By the time Borden was a senior, 1,000 out of the 1,300 students at Yale were in discipleship groups meeting weekly for prayer and Bible study. That's having an impact on your campus for Christ. When William Borden graduated from Yale, he was offered many well-paying jobs. Yet to the great dismay of his friends and family, he refused them all. Instead, he wrote back, wrote in the back of his Bible a second pair of words. No retreats. No retreats. He then enrolled at Princeton Seminary. And after graduating, graduating Borden set sail for China. Intending to serve the Muslim population in China, Borden stopped off in Egypt to study and to learn Arabic. But while he was there, he contracted spinal meningitis, and he lived but a month longer. At the age of 25, William Borden, the heir of the Borden Dairy Estate, was dead. Or was he? Like that little girl set free by Abraham Lincoln, William Borden had been ransomed, but from riches. From pursuing his own glory and simply said to Jesus who ransomed him, Lord, I want to go with you. Wherever you're going, I want to go. In the back flyleaf of William Borden's Bible were found at his funeral two additional pairs of words. No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. No regrets. Friends, to be completely honest, when I started this sermon earlier in the week, I intended to preach a sermon in defense of what is to me a precious and biblical doctrine on the definite atonement. I believe in my bones that Christ died for his church. I studied this passage afresh, and my mind wasn't changed, but I saw what Paul's point really was. The result was not that my mind was changed about the doctrines of grace in general or the doctrine of definite atonement in particular. Quite the opposite occurred. You see, Jesus' death actually did something. His death actually did something. Christ's death did not make salvation merely possible for some. That would be awful. That would be awful. Rather, his death was an effectual redemption. His death was an effectual ransom, a true payment. It was accomplished. The, the redemption of his people was its design. All God's loved and chosen children, Christ paid their ransom at Calvary, and he has not lost even one. This is why Titus 3, verses 4 through 7 declare, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Somebody said, and listen carefully, that Christ did not win a hypothetical salvation for a hypothetical people. A mere possibility of salvation for any who might possibly believe. But rather, Christ died and rose again to impart a real salvation for all his own. I believe that. You see, the point here is that the gospel of Jesus Christ provides... 
a definite atonement with a universal offer. A definite atonement with a universal offer. To put it another way, the blood of Christ was of infinite value, but it was shed with a specific design in mind. Does God love the whole world? Let me hear you. Absolutely, he does. John 3.16 still abides, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We believe that verse to the tips of our toes. Did God send Jesus Christ into the world to save sinners? Yes, he did. 1 Timothy 1.15, For Christ came into the world to save sinners, Paul says, of whom I am the foremost. Do all people believe the gospel? Talk back to me. Do all people believe the gospel? No, they don't. No, they don't. In fact, there's a good verse for this. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3 say simply, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men for not all have faith. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. So I ask you then, how then is man saved? By his own effort? By his own action? Not at all. What does Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 say? It says this, By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So then for whom did Christ die? For whom did Christ die? That's why I've been saying this several times today. Not for all people without exception, but rather for all people without distinction. He died to save his bride. He died to save his people. John 10, 14 to 16 says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock with one shepherd. Or Acts 20 verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Not one drop of blood from the Lord Jesus Christ will be wasted. Not one drop. I am more convinced than ever in God's powerful plan for a particular redemption of a precious bride for his obedient son. Husbands, Ephesians 5.25 says, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And notice, gave himself up for her. For whom did Christ die In the design, it is for us. It is for the church. Pastor John Piper states very very helpfully, Christians are able to cherish the death of Christ as an act of omnipotent love by which Christ, our husband, pays for us. He pursues us. He overpowers us with love. He preserves us uh, as his uniquely loved bride forever. The lover of our souls paid his own blood, not just to make his marriage possible, but to break down the doors of the prison and to take his beloved to himself. That is what he's done on Calvary for you. 
That is what he's done on Calvary for all his own. Listen, 1 Timothy 2, 3 to 6 is not so much about the definite atonement as it is about the universal offer of grace, the universal offer of the gospel. It is that God is a globally loving and globally saving God who desires all kinds of people, white and black, rich and poor, American, Chinese, Indian, African, European, Hispanic, Jew, and Gentile to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. And we dare not limit our gospel proclamation. Do not be predisposed in your restriction of preaching Christ. Sow the seed far and wide. Sow the seed far and wide. Why? Because there is no other Savior. Jesus Christ is the only way. John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4, verse 12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And if you know the way, you invite others to follow the way. Jesus Christ, further, is the one ransom. He's the one ransom. Matthew 20, verse 28, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. For many. Beloved, Jesus will receive from the Father everyone for whom He died in its design. John 6, 37 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus really is the one way and the one ransom for all kinds of people, both Jew and Gentile, male and female, rich and poor, slave and free. That is why, brothers and sisters, we are to pray, preach, give, and go to neighbors and nations alike with the free offer of eternal life in Jesus Christ. You share it, God will save them. You share it, God will save them. There is only one solution for all spiritual problems. There is only one Savior for all sorts of people. There is only one sermon for each and every place. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's what this passage is talking about. May we dare not twist it into some other way. It's a text for false teachers and for dictatorial kings. It's a text for annoying neighbors and for straying children. It's a text for sleepwalking saints and for wicked sinners. That there is one Lord and one faith, one baptism, one God, and one Christ. And he's available to you. He's calling to you. If you feel that unction in your soul, that that spiritual burn in your heart, it is the Spirit of God convicting you. You are to respond. You are to run, plead, and call out on the name of Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. See, the Bible doesn't blush when it says that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We shouldn't either. I believe that verse The question is, do we really believe it, and will we actually pray and preach like it? 
Who are we praying for? And I want, I want to ask you that. Who are you praying for intentionally, perseveringly these days? Who are you speaking to about Christ and about what he's done for you in your life? Who are you celebrating that God is showing himself to them in salvation? Why? And we're moving on to new territory next time. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who really does desire that all people, not people, not all people without exception, for that is universalism, but certainly all people without distinction, because the church of Christ is a beautiful, big, diverse bride for the Lord Jesus Christ, to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. For there is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, that is, for his precious body, the church, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Would you bow with me as I close in prayer? Almighty God and Father, we cannot find the words to say thanks enough for all that you have done to save us for yourself. But Lord, so long as it is today, you give us a life to live in gratitude for your grace. Would we be such a people? A people who marvel at the mystery of the gospel. We don't know who will be saved, but we know that you're a God who does save. We don't know exactly to whom we should share, so why don't we share to everybody that comes across our path? Because you're a God who has promised to save, to seek and to save the lost. So Lord, I pray that you'd fill the church. Fill the church with new disciples. Fill our heart with a fresh passion for the nations. Oh God, be pleased to let that one ransom for all time reach into Blandon, to Berks County, and to the world through us. And we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.